If you love the History Extra podcast, make sure you follow us to keep up to date and get all the latest episodes. Thanks for your support, and I do hope you enjoy this episode. This episode is brought to you by Indeed. We're driven by the search for better, but when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search match with Indeed. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash History Extra. Just go to Indeed.com slash History Extra right now and support our show by saying you heard about Indeed on this podcast. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. Life is a highway, and on it there will be many chicken sandwiches. But there's only one crispy. so go ahead and hit the turn signal if you know about this juicy gem of a detour. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. Today, Healthier is happening at CVS Health in more ways than you've ever seen. It's wellness destinations for seniors, including select locations with Oak Street Health and CVS Pharmacy. It's doctors, nurses, pharmacists, and everyone in between, offering quality care and support virtually, in person, and on the phone. It's in-home evaluations through Signify Health and meeting mental health needs through Aetna. And those are just a few of the ways Healthier is happening. To see more, visit cvshealth.com slash healthierhappenstogether. CVS Pharmacy, Oak Street Health, CVS Specialty, Signify Health, and Aetna are part of CVS Health. Eligibility and services vary by location and individual. I think so much of how we understand love and so much of how we experience it comes from the particular culture and the particular society that we're living in. The way that you know you're in love is through this particular range of symptoms that are culturally constructed. So in the 18th century, people knew they were experiencing love through symptoms like um, blushing, sighing, swooning, crying, fainting. That was Sally Holloway talking about courtship in the Georgian era. You're listening to the History Extra podcast from BBC History magazine. We're the UK's best-selling history magazine, available in print and several digital formats all over the world. Find out more at historyextra.com forward slash subscribe or look out for us in your digital newsstand or app store. Hello and welcome to the History Extra podcast. I'm Rob Attar, the editor of BBC History magazine. Now today's episode is being released on Valentine's Day and we thought it would make a good opportunity to explore the history of romance. To do so, we've caught up with Dr Sally Holloway of Oxford Brookes University, who's just written a book on courtship in Georgian Britain. Our digital editorial assistant, Rachel Dinning, met up with her recently to find out more. So, 
Sally, to start this podcast off, um, what what did love mean in the 18th century? It's a big question to start. Yes, in 18th century England, uh, I think love was characterised by uh, a range of different emotions. So uh, on the more positive end of the scale, you might have happiness, joy, excitement, desire, uh, but also more kind of negative emotions like uh, anxiety, jealousy, sorrow or pain. Um, and I think the most important of these for love in the 18th century uh, was happiness. So couples uh, who were engaging in courtship, uh, they'd write to one another in their letters saying that what they hoped to get from marriage, uh, marrying for love, was uh, happiness. They thought that was something that would bring them happiness. Um, And you can see that in print culture. So there were prints titled Happiness and the illustration uh, was a couple in their home with children, married, and that for many people, that was what happiness should look like. Um, and love was also a really important philosophical idea. Uh, so philosophers like Rousseau uh, argued that in a kind of state of nature, in like an ideal world, how things should be, uh, couples should love each other before marriage. Okay, so in some ways, much the same as the ideals about love we have today. You're striving to be happy, you're striving to be in love before you take the next step and get married. Yeah, I mean, in some ways it's so similar, but in other ways it's very different. Because Well, also, I mean, Europeans used love as a way to judge other civilizations as being either civilised or barbarous in a way that we don't now. Uh, so they believed that in marrying for love, um, you were kind of a civilised moral, virtuous person, Uh, whereas they judged other countries where people might not have married for love or the match was more orchestrated by parents or by family or by friends. Uh, And the couple, the people involved were actually quite indifferent. Uh, They say that's a mark of barbarism and savagery. So love, it was important for your own well-being, but also as kind of measuring the state of the nation. And was that linked to sort of ideas about religion and a a godly sort of love? Yeah, I mean, people uh, repeatedly reference uh, the kind of Christian foundations of marriage, the godly foundations of marriage and their love letters. Um, And it was really important as well uh, to marry someone who was of the same religious persuasion as you. Mm -hmm. So, I mean, the irony is of all these people talking about love, how important love was, uh, actually it was one of a number of factors that made people get married. So you had to marry for love. People felt that they should marry for love because that meant that they were marrying well, but also you'd marry someone of the same religion, someone with a similar character, someone with a similar kind of class background. Um, And there were all these other things that you had to think about as well. You know, if people marry for love and for nothing else, you'd expect to see, you know, a duchess marrying a farmer because they were so in love or, you know, an earl marrying a chambermaid, you know, if love was the only consideration. But the irony is that actually it wasn't. So you did have to marry someone from your social group, from your religion, um, you know, someone, you know, broadly that your friends and family were kind of on board with. Um, But the kind of rationale, you know, that you would give is that you you had to marry for love. And so uh, really, it's no wonder that people were so obsessed with marrying for love because that was the mark of having made a good match. But there were cases where people went against the wishes of their family. Yeah, yeah sometimes. Sometimes, but then people said... Uh, you know, they they were throwing all away because of love. So if if you were courting someone who's of totally totally different status, or particularly actually, I've studied I've studied um, couples who were having affairs, 
who were having adulterous affairs. And sometimes then you had um, relationships with massive social disparities. And um, people then said, you know, lo- it was because love was a leveller. It was because of love, you know, you could have a relationship with anybody. But actually during courtship, you couldn't. So um, love was a really influential and important ideal uh, but it doesn't mean that you could therefore throw away all for love. Status was still important. And I think you can see that uh, at the back of my book. If you look at the appendix, you can see you've got a banker marrying a banker's daughter, merchant marrying a merchant's daughter, a vicar marrying a vicar's daughter. Trend here. <laughs> They're from completely the same background. So you yeah. can see it's not it's not all for love, but that is how they made sense of their relationships. Love someone, but love the right person. Exactly, exactly. <laughs> um, one thing about love today is that we get our idea about relationships and what they look like a lot of the time from books and films and rom-coms. Um, did people in the long 18th century, which is the, the time period you look at in your book, did they do the same? Did they look to books and poetry and art for Absolutely. Love? Absolutely, yes. So uh, the 18th century is the period when you've got uh, kind of the birth of the novel. So you've got the, the epistolary novel, which means a story told through letters. And you had massive bestsellers uh, like Samuel Richardson's Pamela and Clarissa, uh, like Rousseau's Julie or The New Heloise. Uh, like Goethe's The Stories of Young Werther, like Jane Austen's Pride and Prejudice. Uh, And these were avidly read by courting couples. Uh, And sometimes they talked about their favourite characters in their love letters saying, I'm just like Heloise, you know, I'm learning from Heloise. This is what I should do and this is what I shouldn't do. Uh, And you could also, you know, if a man wasn't being as kind of intimate and revelatory and romantic in his letters as you wanted, uh, you could send him a copy of one of these books as like an instruction for what (laughs) you would expect. You know, say, you know, tell me what you're really thinking. Tell me the contents of your heart. Uh, And this is what you should kind of learn from books. So when women today, for example, are still like, oh, I'm looking for my my Mr. Darcy. Women back then were very much looking for their Mr. Darcy. But I mean, it wasn't wasn't always so positive. So I mean, in in some ways, what people got from literature uh, was it provided them with kind of a model for their own relationships, something that gave it kind of structure that you could relate to. Uh, But also sometimes it's a bit more sinister. So um, people would dress up as their favorite characters. So people dressed up like Verta from The Sorrows of young Werther they'd wear um, a blue tailcoat and a yellow waistcoat but the sinister thing is that there was a wave so Werther kills himself at the end of the book uh, by shooting himself with two pistols and after the publication of the book in the 1770s across Europe there was a wave of copycat suicides people kind of following the example from the novel so it was it was by no means all positive the way that people kind of um, integrated these kind of literary tales into their own lives and their own relationship mm-hmm. it's really interesting how um art can impact on people's behavior and how they they see that as a model for themselves to follow. Do you think that we experience love the same way as people in the 18th century from from what you've read about how they felt about it? Is it it a basic human drive that transcends time periods? 
I think so much of how we understand love and so much of how we experience it comes from the particular culture and the particular society that we're living in. Uh, So, for example, how we value love is culturally constructed, so whether we think it's really important or not that important, Um, how we convey our love to others, whether you do it, for example, through writing love letters or through writing love through sending love tokens, um, and also how you feel love in the body. So the way that you know you're in love is through this particular range of symptoms that are culturally constructed. So in the 18th century, people knew they were experiencing love through symptoms like um, blushing, sighing, swooning, crying, fainting. 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 These kind of, it was a mark of your kind of nervous sensitivity. And so to be this kind of a sensitive person, a person of sensibility, was a mark of your status and a mark of your good morality. Was, and that's there, very a different. was there a gendered attitude? So did women experience love differently to men completely completely so a lot of these things like uh, like fainting for example uh, that was kind of the hallmark of the woman in love but other symptoms of love like sighing and like dreaming of a lover uh, that's something that men could do as well but you can see these symptoms are very much of their time so they're not necessarily how we would experience love today could you perhaps give us a, a bit of an overview about how the process of courtship changed over the 18th century some of the how would you go about wooing someone well uh so over the course of the 18th century uh you had a gradual but uneven rise in literacy so more people generally were able to read more people were able to write uh so on the whole more people were able to exchange love letters so love letters became really important as a way of creating this kind of emotional intimacy before marriage so making sure that you had a good match um, and you also had the modernization, professionalization, and centralization of the post office. So people could write more quickly, uh, you'd receive letters more quickly. Uh, and so letter writing became this more kind of immediate means of um, kind of revealing your feelings to your future spouse and helping to kind of forge this bond before marriage. Um, and also that, you know, a lot of historians have argued that there was a massive change in sexual behaviour over the 18th century. So over a third of brides were pregnant on their wedding day. That's crazy because you have this sort of, stere- I've got this stereotypical attitude, oh, people in the past. And oh, no. <laughs> no. No sex before marriage. No, lots of sex before marriage in the 18th <laughs> century. So, I mean, the, uh, the kind of narrative is that there was this move away from kind of fondling and kind of above the waist mutual mutual touching uh, and towards full penetrative procreative sex during the 18th century so that's why so many brides are pregnant on their wedding day you've got a rise in illegitimacy rates so people having sex on a promise of marriage hoping that a man would then honor his promise if they then fell pregnant you write in your book about um how when relationships broke down that they would sometimes have this what are they called break of promise lawsuit breach of promise lawsuit yeah um so you know you broke the relationship breaks down before marriage and then the woman almost sues the man for money yeah yeah sue him for damages yeah sue him for damages because you know her reputation has now been thrown under a buzz (laughs) Um, did that come about because of the the sexual side of relationships do you think? Well, it's a product of kind of changing ideas of gender, what it, masculinity and femininity. Uh, so you've got this kind of idea from about 1790s of the passionless, wo- passionless woman, um, kind of notion that 
kind of men taking advantage of women before marriage. They were kind of impinging on their virtue. And that's something that you could try and recover by suing a man for damages. And it's also about who could legitimately suffer when a relationship came to an end. So people thought that when a courtship ended, it was women who suffered much more. Men were seen to be able to control their emotions much more closely, much more tightly than women could. So there was this danger that if a woman had been deserted, she'd been wronged, you know, she might end up disordered out of her senses. She might end up dying from heartbreak. Uh, And so suing for breach of promise became a way that women um, could kind of get, get damages. In particular circumstances, you might get more money. So if you were pregnant you get much higher damages. You, you get you know, tens of thousands if you've been left before the altar. Uh, or if you'd planned your wedding and then the groom didn't show up, you'd get much higher damages because it was so humiliating. So we spoke a bit about letters and how they were so important in relationships. Um, what sort of things were they writing about? Well, uh, people were using a kind of um, like a shared romantic language. So you knew that you were definitely engaging in a romantic correspondence and that you were talking to one another as lovers and not just as friends. And so people, uh, they kind of quoted uh, particular writers like Shakespeare. It's quite common to invoke Shakespeare. He he, uh, was very popular during the 18th century. Uh, You might invoke typical kind of romantic couples, like models, uh, people like Adam and Eve, uh, Troilus and Crusader, um, Romeo and Juliet, Pamela and Mr. B, uh, you know, Elizabeth Elizabeth Bennet and Mr. Darcy. Um, and also people often wrote passages in French. So uh, French, a bit like it is now, I think. It was the inter- kind of the international language of, of romance. Uh, so often the most juicy passages of love letters are in French. We don't always realise just how much our negative thoughts and experiences stick with us and weigh us down. You may find your brain constantly running through a highlight reel of bad moments. That comment your friend made last week that hurt your feelings. That frustrating thing your mum does. Or that silly thing you said in a meeting. Maybe it's time to get it all off your chest. Whether it's a tiny annoyance or something much bigger. Talking about it can give you some relief and lead you to a potential solution. That's where therapy comes in. It's a safe space to share whatever's weighing you down and learn to process it so your internal highlight reel can focus on the good stuff. And BetterHelp offers affordable online therapy on a schedule that works for you. Connect with a licensed therapist by text, phone or video call. Start the process in minutes and switch therapists anytime. Let it out with BetterHelp. Visit betterhelp.com slash history extra today to get 10% off your first month. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P, dot com slash history extra. This episode is brought to you by Indeed. We're driven by the search for better, but when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search match with Indeed. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash History Extra. Just go to Indeed.com slash History Extra right now and support our show by saying you heard about Indeed on this podcast. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. Life is a highway, and on it there will be many chicken sandwiches. But there's only one McCrispy, so go ahead and hit the turn signal if you know about this juicy gem of a detour.
One of the other sort of stereotypes that we might have about relationships in this time period is that people went straight from courtship to marriage and it was very clear cut, you know, as soon as you're involved with someone, you're going to get married to them. How did a lot of relationships work in these early stages? Was was the sort of like a dating process, trying, testing the water with each other? Absolutely. I mean... People would intensify their relationships gradually through the particular gifts that they were exchanging. So a man might give a woman kind of early, slightly non-committal gifts. It'd be things like a ribbon or a bunch of flowers. Uh, And then he might ask her to engage in a romantic correspondence with him. So he, he would have to ask for her permission before they started exchanging love letters. And that was because you had to, normally you had to pay unless someone had prepaid. If someone sent you a letter, you had to pay to receive it. So you had to ask for permission because otherwise you'd be... Otherwise she's going to get charged. Yeah, you were paying to receive someone's <laughs> rubbish letter. So you needed permission first. Uh, and then, you know, once you were corresponding, you know, that was a pretty good sign that you might be getting engaged. Uh, and then, you know, the most important gifts that you could give, which showed that couples uh, really were going to get married, it was you'd exchange a lock of hair. So a man would cut a piece of your hair and perhaps vice versa. Uh, and also a ring. So men didn't wear wedding rings. Okay. So women, if they're engaged, might wear a ring before marriage and would also wear a wedding ring. Um, So you can see there's a kind of gradual intensification of the rituals. So there's all all these kind of different stages of courtship. Mm -hmm. And also during this period, Valentine's Day is a concept became became a thing (laughs) so it developed into an industry how was it sort of packaged and sold to couples I mean so Valentine's Day I think developed out of print culture so you've got all these new kind of modes of print you've got people printing caricatures, printing newspapers, printing trade cards, printing different types of letter writing paper. So now for the first time, you've got these um, bits of paper with fancy borders printed on them, with uh, pictures printed on them. Uh, And kind of Valentine's Day emerged out of this kind of rich, diversifying, growing print culture. So previously, uh, people had exchanged gifts on Valentine's Day. Uh, They might have had a Valentine's lottery on Valentine's Eve. So really, a lot of the action was happening on the the 13th of February. Okay. On Valentine's Eve, when you'd have this lottery. Um, What sort of lottery? Well, you'd you'd write your name on a bit of paper and drop it into a hat. uh, And then they'd shake the hat and then everybody would pick a name and then the name you picked that was your valentine oh and then you would give a gift or something like that to the person uh, so it was more you can see it's more random so you didn't necessarily choose the valentine yourself and then over the course of the 18th century increasingly uh, it's becoming more kind of individualized people are people are selecting the valentine that they want and then for the first time you could purchase a card that had been printed by a stationer so Previously, people had been kind of exchanging gifts or maybe handmade puzzles and things like that. But by the end of the 18th century, you could actually buy a Valentine card that had been designed and made and printed by somebody else. And what sort of things are on these Valentine's Day cards? Are they similar to nowadays? It's, it's quite similar. I mean, you have things like uh, hearts, cupids, lovebirds, um, doves, uh, people like the goddess Plenty, um, kind of natural imagery uh so 
it kind of evokes this kind of bucolic, ideal, kind of countryside, um, a kind of... Na- pastoral sort of exactly, romance. Yeah. Exactly, a kind of ideal pastoral romance, which was um, kind of uncorrupted by the excesses of civilised society. So the kind of irony was that a lot of these cards were showing things in the country, you know, even as you get more shops and kind of commerce is uh, booming um, and you can buy more and more and more romantic goods. But what it's showing on them, you know, is pictures of uh, lovers sitting underneath trees and in shady groves, etc. you know, surrounded by sheep and surrounded by birds. Very um, idealistic. <laughs> exactly. You studied a lot of letters whilst writing the book. Was there any particular couple that really stood out to you? You were like, oh, that really really enjoyed the correspondence between these two. So one of my favourite exchanges that I found is in the Derbyshire Record Office uh, and it's between the wheelwright, he was called Jedediah Strutt, uh, um, with a domestic servant who's called Elizabeth Woolat, uh, who's from Findon in Derbyshire. And so they'd been friends for years and years and years and years. Uh, and the reason this is my favourite uh, courtship that I've studied is that we can see the exact moment in February 1755 when their relationship starts to become something more. And he kind of seizes the moment to address her as a lover. So he writes, he writes, since our first acquaintance, which is now many years ago, I've often wrote to you, but never in a strain like this. I presume to tell you that from a wandering, inconstant, roving swain, I'm become entirely yours. I'm ready to be all you could wish me to be if you loved me, which is all I wish your husband. So that's kind of the moment in which he says, right, I'm done being friends. You know, this is it. And he makes his big declaration. Yes. That's a bit nicer than just a text that you'd get nowadays. <laughs> well, and she saved it as well. I mean, the thing about a text, a yeah. how, you know, they have uh, in many ways a quite short shelf life unless you're going to print them out or keep them somehow. But she kept this letter because um, it was proof of their relationship and also proof of kind of his feelings. Um, but what's very interesting about this as well is her response is very different. So she is much more cautious and guarded compared to him. Um, was that a, was that um a gendered like a gendered thing that the woman was supposed to be more reserved and conservative about things? Yeah, absolutely. So the key things for women uh, writing love letters, they had to, they must maintain their modesty and they must maintain their virtue. Mm-hmm. And so in her reply, she says, uh, she describes her constant fear of not answering in everything your expectation and describes how she was exercising the utmost caution. So while he could openly and kind of boldly declare his love, uh, she was very much holding back. So their letters are very different. When it comes to breaking up with someone in in the 18th century, how would that generally go? Did did they ghost people? Did much like today, you know, just disappear off the face of the earth? Yeah, What was the protocol for breaking up? Ghosting was definitely a thing. I mean, it wasn't a word. I mean, I've spent, um, I found one relationship where man disappeared hours before the wedding oh grief and uh you know what happened then was that the woman's friends and family kind of rallied round you know they said you know don't worry you know we'll find him you know don't sink under your disappointment (laughs) exactly so they threatened they did threaten to sue him uh but i don't think she actually did in the end and she was okay in the end several years later uh, she married someone else um but certainly people described falling out of love in their letters 
um, people ended relationships. You know, not all courtships ended in marriage. And that is something that people were very aware of at the time. Um, and so that's why, you know, you'd always hold on to someone's love letters because then you could potentially use them as evidence in court if you had to sue for breach of promise. So I found 38% of breach of promise cases brought during this period used love letters as evidence. Um, what was the language of heartache back then? Nowadays, it's like you could rub yourself a pint of ice cream and eat it on the sofa. What, what was the expectation of someone experiencing heartache? Well, I mean, people describe their kind of romantic pain using the language of the heart. So, you know, your heart would be kind of wounded or throbbing or, you know, the absolute worst outcome would be if your heart broke. You know, it was it was a real possibility that you could die from heartbreak. Um, and so to kind of mitigate against that, that's why people's friends and family kind of rallied round. Uh, one of the most important things would be to get your letters back. Mm -hmm. So you get your letters back from a man uh, get a lock of hair back from him to kind of formally mark the end of a relationship. And then, you know, there's some similarities to today in that people would uh, do things like listening to music. You'd go to a spa um, and also kind of spend more time with your friends uh, before kind of reintroducing yourself in society, uh, into society. Um, and I mean, most of the people I've studied whose courtships did break down actually they did still make an advantageous marriages not that long after so it suggests they moved on quickly they got the, yeah they did eventually get over it so it yeah. wasn't having an unsuccessful courtship wasn't the disaster the absolute disaster that people were led to believe in novels so it was possible uh, to find love again and to, and to still make a good marriage mm -hmm. um so for a bit of fun if I was living in the 18th century and wanted to find myself a nice husband, what advice would you give me? Oh, I mean, it depends uh, what social status you are. But I suppose, say if you're a young woman, you might meet a man at the fair. Uh, you might meet him through your friends and family. Uh, or at a ball, at an assembly room, um, at a pleasure garden like Vauxhall or Ranala. Um, and then he might ask if he could correspond with you uh, and then you that provide a way of kind of developing your emotional connection uh, and then you might exchange gifts so you could also make gifts for him like what sort of gifts would I give him you might make uh, things like uh, handkerchiefs woven with your hair so then you're literally giving part of your body to this man they liked giving hair didn't they that absolutely <laughs> absolutely because you're you're literally giving part of yourself mm-hmm um, that can be carried around by a lover that lasts forever. You know, the locks of hair that people exchange during courtship in Georgian England uh, still survive today. So you wrote that men and women engaging in courtship had a wealth of consumer goods available at their disposal. Um, so what, what sort of goods were they? Well, uh, a lot of courting couples exchanged uh, toys. So uh, I don't mean toys like we do today, like toys played with by children, but a toy was like a kind of trinket or a kind of frippery. Uh, so they might exchange things like snuff boxes, patch boxes, uh, a bonbonniere, that was a kind of decorated box that you'd store sweets in. Mm -hmm. uh, you might exchange jewellery, so like a ring, a portrait miniature, a silhouette. Uh, men often gave women uh, gifts that were typically associated with courtship, like gloves. So you might buy kid leather gloves that were printed with particular romantic motifs, like cupids couples also exchange books quite commonly so um both men and women gave one another books 
but also they underlined particular passages and said, you know, have a look at this particular page. This is this is my favourite bit, or this is the bit I most agree with. This is speaking to me exactly. about our relationship. Exactly. And, yeah. This is speaking to me. Does it speak to you too? As kind of mm-hmm. a sign that you were, you know, well matched. Um, and also men gave women gifts like uh, stay busks. So a stay busk uh, is a long piece of wood that a woman would insert down the front of her stays, um, and later known as a corset. Um, oh. And it, they came, you could buy them from shops by the end of the that 18th century. That feels quite an intimate thing to give to someone. Absolutely. So again, a bit like hair, which is literally from the body. Uh, you know, these were, a lot of these were gifts that were worn touching the body, like a ring, like a stay busk. Um, they were things that were, were worn very close to you. Um, and a stay bus, you could buy it from a shop with little win- little uh, squares or windows cut into it and you'd have your initials painted into the squares. Oh, very good. Um, and then the other thing that we haven't actually talked about is how long would a courtship generally last before marriage? How long would you be expecting to court someone? Well, the average courtship was between about one and four years. So some people got married really quickly. They just disappear and elope. But I mean, that was seen as complete madness. And it was quite extremely rare not to involve, you know, your friends and family in it too. Uh, but then the other extreme, I have found people who courted for seven or eight years. So that, But that was much, that was a really long drive drawn out courtship. So for example, if you were courting uh, a soldier or a sailor or an explorer or someone who was away for long periods of time, you might have a longer courtship. Uh, That was was pretty, that longer than you expected? Yeah, much longer than I expected. Well, people didn't get married as quickly as you might think because you had to have the means to do it. So marriage was a key marker of adulthood. You had to have the money to set up your own household um, and to be a kind of stable, independent economic unit. So marriage was, you know, the sign you were you were an adult, you were ready to move out mm-hmm. and get a place of your own. Uh, so you had to have the money to do it as well. But I mean, some people did get married much more quickly. It just depends. And what did a wedding look like back then? Oh, well, it was the eight, uh, end of the 80s century you had um kind of the emergence people started wearing uh white wedding dresses so uh, and people wore kind of white and silver gowns with much greater frequency um the wedding wasn't the big deal that it is today people didn't have generally uh kind of enormous flamboyant expensive weddings um I mean, people would, women would kind of wear their best, their best dress for the occasion. You'd wear your best clothes. Sure. And I mean, you would still have things like bride cake. You'd still have a cake. There'd still be a sort of celebration element to it. I mean, I found some people who, uh, you know, some men who anticipation, in anticipation of getting married, they'd buy something like a nice gold watch to wear on their wedding day. Treat yourself. (laughs) Yes, exactly. I mean, you still, you know, people still uh, wore kind of their, their best dress. Um, but it wasn't the kind of enormous celebration that people have now. Mm-hmm. Um, well, I think that we're nearing the end of the podcast now. So I'd just like to say thank you so much for coming thank on. You. It's been really interesting. Um, but yeah, it was lovely speaking to you. Thank you so much. Happy Valentine's Day. <laughs> that was Sally Holloway. The Game of Love in Georgian England courtship emotions and material culture is out now in the uk published by oxford university press and in the us it will be released next month from the same publisher and if you'd like more on the history of love then head to our website where we've created a special section for valentine's day you'll find that on historyextra.com 
forward slash Valentine's Day. And that is about all for this episode, but do join us again on Monday when we'll be exploring the history of philosophy. Thanks for listening to this History Extra podcast, which was produced by Jack Fletcher. Do let us know what you think about this episode by emailing podcast at historyextra.com and we might read out your messages in future editions. Alternatively, why not keep in touch via Twitter or Facebook, where you'll find us at History Extra. For more great history content, don't forget to visit our website, historyextra.com, which is full of history articles, quizzes, image galleries and more. Plus, it's where you can download hundreds of previous episodes of this podcast. 